Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the journalist and broadcaster Martha Carney. You'll know Martha if, like me, you have Radio 4 on in the background most of the time. I wake up to the news on the Today programme in the morning, so Martha's voice is usually in the background as we all get ready for work. Martha used to present Women's Hour. She was political editor on Newsnight. Then one of my favourites was The World at One. But she swapped her comfortable lunchtime slot for an unfeasibly early start to present the Today programme, which has been good for me because I love the tone of the programme now. I first met Martha four or five years ago when she sent me a link to a wonderful program she'd made about bees in the ancient world. It was a fascinating program which combined her other passion of beekeeping and classical history. I think it's still available, so we'll put a link up on the podcast webpage. Martha also organises a wonderful bee day in aid of bees for development at Marlborough House, where she auctions off all sorts of amazing prizes, including one of my necklaces usually. And now we do Italian classes together and occasionally French classes when I get enough time. So we both share a love of learning languages. So it is very, very nice to be double vaxxed, tested and sensibly socially distanced. And today we're meeting in person. So Martha Carney, presenter, journalist, bee enthusiast, classicist and linguist, welcome to This Is A Token. lovely to see you in the flesh I think since before the first lockdown so this is a, a real feels, treat for me like I feel like I'm emerging from hibernation actually at the moment because yeah. gradually seeing friends again and it's wonderful me and Denise keep doing things like we say um oh the paint's peeling off that window and then we say well we just did it last year and then Everything we think about, we have to add a year on because we've sort of got a missing year. So everything that we thought was a year last year was actually two years ago. And I did a long walk with a friend on Hampstead Heath and we spent quite a long time working out whether Easter had happened or not. (laughs) You know, we were in this sort of rain fog about it all. It's been so weird. So for me... I've really enjoyed the bit of time to do so go back to doing some drawing and things, and I've kind of readjusted the things I do. So there have been, amongst all the awfulness, there have been some little chinks of silver lining to the clouds. Um, anything... Silver lining, see what you're doing there as a junior. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've done it. <laughs> Gold lining also, I hope. I'll have your job in a minute, you're right. Uh, has it all just been tough for you, or have, have you had any...? Well, I'm kind of counting my blessings No one close to me got coronavirus. My family have been fine. So by and large, it's been okay. Work-wise, it's been very strange because I presented from home from our cottage in Suffolk for Mm. most of the year because they didn't really want very many people in the building. And, um, you know, people I knew were vulnerable. So it was the safest thing to do was to present from home. So I had to do all the technical side myself, well, sort of as you're doing today with the podcast, but it's more complicated for a three-hour live programme when your My broadband gosh. is non-existent in the countryside. And so guys, that was terrifying. I think you guys did brilliantly because the Today programme sort of kept us all going. So 
And I had some very um, strange moments. Like one morning, the engineer said to me uh, during a news bulletin, so, you know, this is Martha, have you got a cuckoo clock in your house? And I went, no, that is, in fact, a cuckoo. <laughs> and which normally, of course, brilliant. you'd be thrilled about, wouldn't you? Brilliant. Not when you're doing very serious <laughs> interviews about <laughs> American politics. I thought it was quite nice. I thought everyone had a great deal of understanding and sympathy for everyone. You know, we were all just trying to get by, weren't we? They're everyone was good. pretty good about yeah. it. And I think they still are, actually. I think something I've noticed is a bit more kindness in the world. So when I'm out and about walking, you'll sort of, if you catch someone's eye, you'll often smile and, and give them a nod more than I we did pre-pandemic. So, Which is quite hard with a mask on, though, isn't it? I'm trying to yeah. sort of practice my smile. Make your eyes. I can smile <laughs> yeah. your eyes. Well. I know, but it, I mean, it made me realise how much I, I do smile at strangers and mm. how hard it is when you can't do that mm. naturally. After I listened to that um, programme about the bees in antiquity, I was looking at the famous and fantastic Minoan bee brooch. Do you know the one I mean with the two bees side by side? I've got a picture of it, which I'm going to find. Alex, you don't need a picture of it. Look. Are we going to be... This is this oh, is this is wow. one of the things that I uh, brought out mate, to show you. That's fit. it's well, a replica of the two bees, isn't it? It is. It's exactly yeah. the, a replica of the bee necklace. Now, well, I'm going to photograph these, so we'll put these up on the website. It was fascinating because I often get people saying to me, "Oh, have you seen so and so? You know, that so and so is doing a bee like yours kind of thing." And I always have oh, you a lot of copycats. <laughs> a lot of I, I get yeah, very but, irate on your behalf. But I but I have I. I always say, you know, look, my bee, uh, there's a lot of sort of story behind, history behind my bee, but basically people have been making bees since, you know, certainly back to Egyptian, Minoan. And um, so, you know, you can have a look in any museum or in any book and you'll see bees in jewellery. Yeah. And you'll see bees in art and, and represented. Those bees, those Minoan bees, they're a bit more waspish than bees. So I was kind of interested in whether they actually were bees. But I think they are definitely bees, having done research for yeah. the programme. Because one of the myths in ancient Crete was that Zeus, baby Zeus, was hidden in a mountain in Crete and he was fed by bee goddesses. Oh, and so, and they, okay. so, so bees are a kind of sacred symbol. So they would have been bees. And that's partly because they give honey and all that they have a kind of religious connotation. So I think they, they may not be very good, not as well, accurate as your bee, Alex. Um, well, no, <laughs> so my bee is because there's a million and one different varieties of bees, aren't there? And so my bee's a, a bumblebee, which is, and it was actually a buff-tailed bumblebee was the was the original one. Oh, it's so funny you say buff-tailed bumblebee mm. because that's been one of my lockdown projects is I've become a bee spotter. Wow. So having been just a honeybee person, I'm now moved on to, so I spent a long time trying to work out, is that a buff-tailed bumblebee or is it a white-tailed bumblebee? And quite a lot of bees aren't. Actually, bees, are they? They're, there are flies that look like Yeah, bee bees. flies, yeah, yes. Which, are, which is confusing. I like the red-tailed one. That's very easy, isn't it? That's just black with a red tail. So my favourite, without a doubt, is the is called the pantaloon bee, and they have them at Minsmere, or at least if we can contact one of the wardens at Minsmere, he used to take me to show me the different types of bees. So I love a solitary bee. So these chaps, they burrow down into the sand. It's probably beside a footpath where you've got a little bit of hard sand in the kind of grassiness, you know. And the reason you know it's a, a pantaloon bee is because there's no sand around the top of the hole. It's completely clean. So they have these pantaloons which they use as brushes. So when they come out of their holes, they brush down the um, the surface around the entrance of their bee, which is why it's smooth. And you can see them, but they all come out and busy around and do, and do all the cleaning up. And, and they're absolutely beautiful. 
And there's another one where we are in the forest in Suffolk. It's on a sand, sand link. So there's sort of sandiness and sandy cliffs. And there's some places where you get a lot of solitary bees. And we have the one, it's like, I think it's a, a sort of copper bee. I can't remember exactly what it's called. And it has this amazing metallic blue and red copper. I have to find a picture of it. Really? It's How just, amazing. You wouldn't believe it. Like when you see some birds, you just think this is a sort of tropical thing. It's not, can't be British. And I don't know enough about them. So I bought loads of bee books during lockdown. And I kind of love them and watch them. Another one that I'm quite keen on, weirdly, is, isn't is a bee. It's called bee wolf, which is a wasp, which oh, goes yes, out I've and seen catches bees. And, and I used to have loads of them outside my house. And it's just like, you know, it's like a horrible episode of aliens or something. Because they catch the bees, they paralyze them, they take them down into their nest where they're paralyzed, they lay their eggs inside and the eggs hatch and sort of feed on the bee while it's still alive. It's just ghastly, but, but it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it'd be really nice if we could go to Mincemeat. I'd time. love to do that. I'd love to do that. A bee spotting expedition. If the warden's still there, we can ask her. But that would be great. So are you now as like semi-expert, more expert than me? No, not at all. Not at all. As you know, I had to give up beekeeping because I had a bad anaphylactic reaction to a sting and ended up in hospital. So and I've, I've had years of immunotherapy through the NHS, so I could keep honeybees again, but actually I've become more interested in creating habitats for pollinators more yes. generally. So we've yes. created a wildflower meadow that's in its second year now and wow. is absolutely throbbing with bumblebees and butterflies and, you know, that's what I really like. But I, I'm very early stages of being able to identify any of them. Yeah, so I think that's something that's really concerned me because I love flying insects. So I've always hated any form, even sort of killing mosquitoes. I'm slightly like, oh, come on, we need... Because we, you know, we want to encourage the swallows and we have bats where we are. You know, so you want the flying insects so that the animals that, and particularly flying animals that depend on them, survive. And it feels like the numbers have just depleted completely. I think I heard something on... and it, Whenever I hear something that I think I, I'm an expert on, I always start talking about it. And I actually heard it on, on the Today programme. And, and it was just in the background. And, I, and I've forgotten half of it. And I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think there was... Someone was... They were going to do some sort of study and it was called the number plate test or something. And you had to count the number of dead insects on your number plate. And that would somehow give you a reading as to how many... How uh, populations how were... People do say anecdotally, don't they? Windscreens don't have insects on them in the same way that they used to but, do. And I was worried about that because I dislike cars. I've got to change my car. I don't really use it very often. But um, I've got to change my car because of the ULEZ um, things <laughs> coming into London. And all new cars have really slopey windscreens and I'm quite tall in the body so I can't I sort of bang my head against the roof and the windscreen so I'm wondering with, with that I'm wondering whether it's because the windscreens are slopey because windscreens used to be upright oh right so it may how, not be fear and you know I don't think it's a, we can have a sort of precise science on how that one works but um certainly there feels like there are fewer flying insects now than there used to be but if you plant for them my great get on my Absolutely. on my soapbox about it as we've done you know you'll you'll see your garden just absolutely your window box is just absolutely throbbing yeah. uh, with insects we put i put up a box for swifts because some of our neighbors have swifts visiting wow. them but none of my bird boxes have birds in them and these have bumblebees <laughs> I was going to make, yeah, and everybody said, oh, it must be tree bumblebees because it's so high up. 
And it's not. I think it is buff-tailed bumblebees. But I've, I've been up on a ladder with my binoculars, <laughs> rather perilously perched, watching them go in and out. We do the same. We, we've got countless bat boxes and bird boxes, and they generally it's either a squirrel or you know it's the wrong thing, isn't it, that comes in them? Yeah, and they prefer a hollow tree. Yeah, like. But I always think I get annoyed. Like, don't you don't you know that that's not bats? <laughs> not you know. One of our bat boxes actually got um, a family of tree creepers in, which was nice. So that was, oh, that was lovely. Sort of bonus, oh, I love that. Yeah, we had yeah. a tree creeper coming to our feeder during lockdown. It was wonderful. They and then they feed kind of upside down. Don't yeah, they? Amazing, amazing. Well, I think you sort of recognise them by the way that they crawl around a, a tree more than anything else because I'm always too far away from birds to recognise them and so and I haven't got that thing where I I know a few bird calls but I haven't got them all so I can't identify them by their call and I, they're too quick for me to see them so you have to sort of catch something like a woodpecker it's the way it flies or, or at night a, a barn owl it's the way they fly that you sort of go yes That's it's what, it's what the bird is called the jizz isn't it it's yeah. general uh, yeah, yeah general something or other yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you also, because we're here meeting in person right down by the Thames, and it's such an amazing space. Have you ever mudlocked? Yes. Um, Chris, my other half, oh. uh, does quite a bit of mudlarking. And we haven't found anything terribly interesting. There's a few jars of things, mm. um, bits of broken pottery and so on. The old horseshoe, that kind of thing. Nice. Because I was wondering about it, because just by coincidence, I met a person in the shop the other day and she had masses of those garnets that, that, that the Thames throws up. Again, I've probably heard about this on Radio 4 somewhere, but I think... I didn't know about those, really, yeah. garnets. So they're called Thames garnets. And what's interesting is I was just reading something about it after I met the woman and she said they look like pomegranate scenes and that's where the name garnet came from because oh, it's so probably the garnet and it's the garnet bit, uh, granite bit that's been changed to garnet. But... Um, I think after there's been a storm or a heavy rain, there are several pockets, but only the people in the know know where those places are. And it just throws up loads and loads of little garnet beads. And we, I don't think people know whether they're Anglo-Saxon or what. But um, How exciting. Oh, so right. she was saying that she believed, or, or one, of the, one of the possible explanations was that someone sort of buried a mass of jewellery somewhere. And when there's a storm, bits of it are sort of washed out and damp because they're very in very particular pockets along the Thames. And so she wants us to make some jewellery out of them, which would be brilliant. Oh, God, how an exciting project. Yeah. Exciting brilliant. project. That's wonderful. And I've always wanted a mudskip. I love it down by the river as much as anything. Oh, Chris will take you. One of his birthday presents, maybe two or three years ago, is I, I got him a mudlarking licence. I mean, you can just go yeah. and do it. But if you want to dig down a bit... Right. You have to apply to the Port of London Authority and, you know, to dig down, I think, up to only four inches or something like that. Yeah. But, he, but I had to send his photograph off and get a proper licence. Also, it's nice to have a little licence. And I guess, yeah. I guess you then become part of the sort of mudlarking community and you're a bit more official, aren't you? Yeah. Martha, shall we, because I'm always doing this, we're chatting too much, shall we have a look at some jewellery? Because yes. we've got some lovely pieces there, and we talked about that Minoan bee already, so let's have a look and see what you've got for us. And I have to say, this is not a great kind of, in terms of value collection, but these are things that mean a lot to me personally. That's what we're after, so yes. 
Okay, so this rather dingy, very thin bangle is the first present that Chris gave for me when we first started going out with each other as first year students. And he had just come back from a kind of hippie year traveling in India and Afghanistan, Nepal, all of that part of the world. And so he had very long hair. And um, this was a bangle that was made from a piece of copper from a telegraph pole in Afghanistan and then was inlaid with bronze. He put it on and I wore it almost like an engagement ring and never took it off. And it got thinner and thinner and thinner and lots of the metal wore off. So I always had like a green stain mm. around mm. my thing. And then eventually it got too thin and broke. And we had it mended and it sort of broke again. So I've kept it for a kind of old oh. time's sake. And Chris very sweetly gave me a bangle kind of to replace it, which is a much posher one because it's made of gold. But I still have a huge amount of affection for that. That's so sweet. So the original one is a, is a sort of rough and hammered finish it's sort of d-shaped in section and it's just a, a very simple bangle slightly thicker on the front than it is round at the back did it used to join up completely no it didn't it no yeah. yeah it had a gap yeah. in it yeah because i can see one end smooth and the other end's rough as if that must have been broken that broken off. up that's yeah. sort of broken yeah. off and i think we did have it kind of a bit kind of welded on when it broke because you know something that you've worn for so long is part of you and it becomes a bit of a habit you're always yeah. fiddling with it yeah. and for a long time I would be doing this waiting you know and, yeah. and missing where it was that's such a lovely story it's kind of sad that there's a piece sort of in your jewellery box that's just being saved rather than being <laughs> worn yeah would you think of sort of doing something with it to make it be, be worn again I mean it's, really, it's rather nice isn't it because it's got the story and it's got the history yes um, and the yeah and, and I like the idea that it's worn thin because yeah. of over the years because yeah. yeah, it's a real totally. kind of emotional feel to me well, I suppose that's why there isn't that much sort of copper jewellery around is because it, it's very soft and it bends very easily yeah. it's got a bronzier sort of colour to it than copper so maybe it was copper that was on top it might be I wonder if that's a sort of bronzy thing that had copper on but um, that would make sense in a way because of the green rubbing off so that would have been the copper on the I top think, of it coming I think you'll get green from ev- anything so oh. we have some sort of water which means that from our taps you end up with with a sort of turquoisey colouring on the sinks everywhere I mean Southwark because I think it's a little bit acidic or something so the copper's leaching out so mm. you know that is the typical copper colour would be that blue that you get on mm. but it's just the colour of that metal looks a bit sort of bronzy or brassy rather, or something rather like than that. Co- yeah or brassy um, maybe. and then is this one like gorgeous solid gold <laughs> The other ones are slightly more triangular in shape and round in section, but it still has the opening in it. Do you wear this? Do you know, because it's very soft gold, yeah. it's too triangular there, so it's sort of slightly annoying to wear. It's ended up as a slightly peculiar mm. shape, which mm. is just slightly annoying. Mm. So I don't wear it, really. Um, and it's also, I, I meant to find out for you, but it, there is an inscription just by chance in Sanskrit in there, which I did find out what it was, but I can't find My it. My Sanskrit's a bit rusty. <laughs> we, we do... <laughs> We do um, Italian and French together. But not Sanskrit. (laughs) Someone will be able to tell us, won't they? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, in all seriousness, because it's such pure gold, I don't know what what carrot the gold is, but just looking at the colour, it looks like something you'd see in the British Museum where the colour is is this beautiful, deep, yellowy, orange colour. I imagine it's very, very pure gold, which is probably why it's quite bendy. It's actually, you know... There's quite a weight of gold there. I don't know how much it weighs, but, you know, there's some value in that. Mm. But it's easy as pie to just knock it round into a shape that's comfortable for you and that fits. And that would stay like that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. 
I did take it back to the shop once to the do it, and then it ended up just when you're taking it on and off, it kind of seems to go back to that. But maybe there's an easier way of doing it. To make metal soft, you heat it up. So it has this sort of structure that, that becomes a bit more sort of crystalline when it's worked, which is what basically metal fatigue is. So when metal gets worked, it gets more and more brittle and stronger. And then if you bend it more, it'll just break in the end. But if you heat it up, all the molecules realign and it becomes soft again. So when I'm teaching people, I always show that we get a strip of metal, we bend it, bend it, bend it, and then it's almost impossible to bend. Then I heat it up and it's just like cheese again until it gets harder and harder and harder. Mm. So it looks like this is bending in specific places, which means that it's been annealed there and it's nice and soft. And so you can work harden a bracelet to make it bend evenly throughout the whole bangle oh, really? rather than in the one place where it's been softened. So, you know, there might be things to be done but yeah I mean you know, if you're passing sometime bring it in and we'll try and, we'll try and knock it around <laughs> work it hard and see if we can make it so that you can wear it yeah, I know but this is a bit of a joke because as I say I do miss not wearing this one so it would be nice to be able to use that one as a I'm wondering what, what could be done with this one like I was sort of thinking oh well, it could make a nice you know spoon handle or you know we could just do a ring out of it and you'd have a green <laughs> finger instead it's quite nice to, to use yeah it. no exactly no, not again. just in a way that's what I've quite liked about you asking me to do this because it was a very good way of kind of yeah. looking at what I've actually got yeah I think also it means that Chris is a good egg because if someone buys you nice jewellery when they're away when you're that kind of age it's just so sweet and you know and I never did it so I'm holding my hands up because you know when you're a student you're away you just sort of forget about everything but also he was thinking about you while he was on his travel so it's a very sweet gesture isn't it for a young man to think and do that I'm always slightly humbled when people do that (laughs) and you always think well they've got to be they've got to be a good run then so that's nice University we at just it's Oxford. Oxford, right? Yeah. Doing classics or, or doing classics? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Just out of interest and very brief, how did you get from Oxford doing classics to being a journalist working for the Beeb? I always imagine people at Oxford doing classics. You might get a tap on the shoulder and join MI six or something <laughs> like that, or, or, or you you know work in a museum somewhere, being, being a bit of a sort of study curator or something. Well, I, I don't think I'd ever have been tapped up. I'm far, far too <laughs> indiscreet. And you know, I started off quite hippie-ish at Oxford and then ended up loving punk music and all I'm sorts of things. So I, I don't think I'd have been seen as a kind of pillar of the establishment at that age. No, I started off, I heard there were shifts going at LBC Radio as a phone operator. I'd done a little bit of a student radio. I did a little bit at Oxford, not very much. Mm. And yeah, so I, I worked on late night phone-ins, answering telephone calls and putting them mm. through to going on air. And then worked in news information, which this sounds like such an old-fashioned job, but we would cut newspapers and stick them on pieces of paper and put them in the cuttings library. So when journalists said, you know, tell me everything about okay. um, housing policy, you'd go to the drawer marked housing policy and you'd give them a, a bunch yeah. of yellowing newspaper cuttings and they'd flick through it. I mean, now it's just seconds on the internet, isn't it? There's no scissors involved now. There's, there's, no, there's no scissors involved. <laughs> we were always covered it's in newsprint. Fun. And, it, you know, I look back <laughs> on that newsroom and it was, we all smoked, you know, we yeah. sat around, there were typewriters, yeah. no computers. It was, I, I was on Fleet Street. 
lots of strange drinking dive bars around the place. It was a very weird first job, but I did love it. And I worked in every different bit of the radio station. So I learned a huge amount. From my point of view, that with everything's changed so much and all the technology is so much better. I don't know that you could say 100% that journalism's a zillion times better now. You know, in some ways, those sort of boozy, smoke-filled pubs, and it all seemed to be... I don't know, there was something quite romantic about it. I thought something quite... Well, there was certainly... It was great. You'd bump into people from different, you know, newspapers and radio. There was more of a feeling, I suppose, of camaraderie amongst, uh, amongst the journalists. But I think having the internet is a huge advantage in terms of being able to find out things so quickly. It's very... I'm sure... I mean, journalism has to be better informed that you're able to quickly check things rather than go to a cuttings library in the basement to try to discover things. Do you know a journalist called Janice Turner? Yes, right. I do. So yeah, very a, good columnist. She's very good great, columnist. She's, her and Ben, are, oh, they live nearby and the kids were at primary school together, so they're great friends. I didn't know, but um, Janice interviewed my daughter because she doesn't have a mobile phone. And she was saying that everyone's just checking their phones all the time. And they were upstairs in her bedroom at the top of the house. And someone said, let's go and smoke a cigarette. I'm not sure it was a cigarette. On the roof. And immediately everyone pulled out their phones and said, and someone said, oh, no, it's going to start raining in a minute. And so they all sort of checked and they were like, let's not do it. And she was just like, oh, my God, what's happened to you all? You know, let's just do it. No spontaneity. There was a lack of spontaneity. And I didn't know about this interview or story, but I was reading The Times and I recognised my daughter's name and went, oh, my gosh, you know. So I totally get the kickback against smartphones and the internet and the immediacy and the yeah. need to know everything straight away and, and yeah. the effect that that has to sort of diminish quality of life often. Oh, definitely. It's trouble. very addictive. And I can remember, I think maybe somebody interviewed in the day program talking about how to control your phone addiction. And he said, and this really struck me, like at the start of the day, if somebody said to you, you're going to spend two hours on your phone today, Martha, what would you you'd be horrified? Yet by the end of the day, very easy. Th- and even yeah. us talking about it, I said, well, I wonder what, oh, and my phone is next to me. I think, oh, is this okay? You know, should I go and have a look at it? So I think your daughter's very wise, actually. I think so, but I notice now the more things you can't do without, like, you know, perhaps if you're going to need a vaccine passport or whatever it is, I'm all for these things, but give a paper alternative for people like my mum and my daughter, because the three of us may very well, we do, we go to Italy all the time together, and there'll only be one out of three of us that has a smartphone, and it's, you know, gosh, if you can't just go about your business, it can't be right, can it? Sorry, I'm digressing more. Yes. So you met Chris, and you you know, that was a a few years ago, so that's nice. Any boys uh, or young men out there, buy a nice piece of (laughs) jewellery early on, and you're in there, I reckon. It worked, it worked, it worked very well indeed. You're a keeper. Mm. I mean, it made me realise how important travel has been in our lives and my life. Um, I mean, maybe that's partly because of the past year we haven't been able to do any of it. So the, that bangle was originally from Afghanistan. When Chris and I were about 30, we packed in our jobs and went travelling for a year, which was absolutely fantastic. And But I remember one birthday, so my birthday's in October, we were in Varanasi and Chris got me this charm bracelet, which had it's lots of kind of little Indian things on it as a memento of our trip. 
So there is a camel. We cycled a lot in Rajasthan and often we're overtaken by camels. There's an Indian chapel, a sandal there. There's some art. I think that's a dancing Shiva, Shiva Natraj, I think it might be called. But then this is the bit that really made me laugh because it's a bucket. And in some ways, it was the worst birthday I ever had because I had terrible upset tummy. Oh, <laughs> so no. The I bucket is... <laughs> and so I, I remember sitting oh. in this room. Chris gave me this child braces and he'd got a cake for me but I was so ill I couldn't eat the cake I was ill for quite a long period of time until eventually we went to Nepal and we were going to go trekking and I went to a hospital and they gave me some medicine it turned out it was Jardia and so I've been thinking oh maybe I should just stay natural and just wait for it all to pass drink lots of water absolutely not no modern medicine absolutely marvellous so that's the little yeah I know I think he got these little charms from different places around a market I think in Varanasi Benares you know by the I saw this little tray. I mean, you know, we'll have to wait and see, but I I kind of knew this was going to be my favourite piece because I absolutely love a charm bracelet, but I didn't know that's 10 times better because it's not just something bought off a hook from us. It's actually, you know, properly aimed at you. What I love is this. (laughs) Yes. I love the sound of that charm bracelet. So they kind of sound good and they look good. Is this too precious for you to wear? No, not at all. I, I wore it a lot. And then it's been tucked away, so you can see slightly tarnished, at the back of a yeah. jewellery box. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I will wear it now, well, now that I've so got it out. So you just yeah, sort of yes. go through and, and also clean things up, because you're like, oh my gosh, that's, i better clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, yes. Okay, so what I love in the charms is the bucket, the handle sort of is mobile, so it sort of jiggles. <laughs> and then there's a gorgeous pair of scissors that oh, yeah, this Yes. And when I did some little charm bracelets, we, we were doing a project for John Lewis, and I did some scissors. And the most important thing was that I could cut paper with the scissors. Like, if you're going to make jewellery, it has to work. <laughs> you so things that do things, the prayer wheel sort of spins round on mm. its little pin. God, you could fit it with that forever. That's gorgeous. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm glad that you That is absolutely that. gorgeous. a bit of patina on it because it's it's well aged so we've got this amazing thing with magnets that spin round and you put a sort of tupperware on top which is full of tiny little steel pins and a sort of soapy liquid and you put your jewelry in and the pins you know when magnets move they all do this sort of ripply thing uh-huh. and they just clean absolutely everything and it just comes out how Every amazing. little nook How... and crevice it comes out so clever sparkly yeah. so we could do that but in some ways quite nice isn't it yeah that's great that's super um, bracelet so so lots of traveling around yes um, journalizing while you were traveling or pure so in this year no we decided that we actually i think we didn't have any intention of going back to journalism we thought we'd been working very hard we saved some money and decided to go kind of backpacking for a year it was something i'd always wanted to do and chris had done it in his gap year but i'd never done it so that was a fantastic year but then Towards the end of our time, I can remember tuning into the World Service and listening to British political news and getting more and more alert. 
And Chris said, I think you're going to go back to journalism. And oh. I did. And I'm glad, but it, in a way, it was sort of to have that chance to step back and think, do I really love, you know, what I'm doing? And then I came back absolutely sure. I loved that year travelling, but I was certain that that's what I wanted to do, sort of reinvigorated well, think, my love of journalism. So, you know, I think what I get from you is you're very interested. I think you have an interest in people and what goes on. And obviously you're interested in bees and nature as well. But when we do our Italian, sometimes, you know, you'll miss a class or two and then you'll say... I'm just back from the Arctic or whatever <laughs> doing this thing. So it does seem like an amazing, amazingly sort of, I don't know if the right word's privileged, but an amazing job where you can do these fantastic things. You can meet people, you can go to places, you can find out yes. about what makes things tick, which kind of feels like you a bit. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really curious person. And I have to try sometimes when I'm not working not to bombard people with lots of questions. And in, it's true. I mean, I've been to some amazing places around the world, but also in this country. I mean, yeah. just recently, I did a programme from Northern Ireland, which is a very interesting place politically at the moment. And I went and walked a fair bit along the border and went to a fishing port that I know very well called Kilkeel and talked to fishermen there about how much their lives had changed and how, you know, they remembered the big fleets of the past mm. and they diminished and now Brexit has come and they're very fierce loyalists, but they were frightened about there being, you know, United Ireland. And this wasn't somebody that we booked to do an interview. They said, oh, you should go and talk to so-and-so in the British Legion. So I went and had a couple of pints of, I have a couple of pints of Guinness. <laughs> the guys have some Guinness. And that I, that is a real privilege, actually. You, you, it gives you a licence to go and talk to all sorts of people and by and large... They will, you know, and that's, I, I really like that. So the sense I get is that there are various ways that you can do journalism. And one way is to be quite confrontational and argumentative. And, and I totally get that that's a way of challenging people and, and to get Well, holding power to account sometimes. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a very necessary thing. But purely selfishly, when I'm sort of wanting to get ready for work, I prefer the more collaborative approach of chatting and people giving information, finding out about people and giving information and understanding the situation that way rather than from a confrontational point of view. Because sometimes with the confrontation, I feel like there's a bit of of point scoring and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, we're we're all used to that with politicians, aren't we? That, That they have a difficult job and sometimes they have to sort of present a certain point of view. But I just prefer to hear the approach of a more sort of inquisitive, interested, collaborative approach. And sometimes I feel like you get more information out of that. So, I mean, the kids have all grown up now, but certainly when I was screaming at the kids, you didn't want people on the radio screaming at each other as well. It was like, oh, got a bit much. But sometimes I'd go, Radio 3, Radio 3, just don't go to sleep. Super. The first time I went to Afghanistan was in 2002. And it's very much in my mind at the moment because Mm. the US troop withdrawal is coming up in September for the anniversary Mm. of 9-11. And I've been back many times over the years and it's such a beautiful country but obviously ravaged horribly by civil war and you can still see in parts of Kabul bombed buildings and you know it's 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 a country that I, I feel very sorry for the people there but there have been some amazing initiatives to try and encourage the local economy and one mm. of them is a charity called Turquoise Mountain ah we know do that know, do you know we've, we've been in talk for years to sort of work together but I haven't quite got it together yet okay so, well yeah. it's it's in a wonderful bit of an old fort in old Kabul yeah and they work, as you know, to encourage I mean, all sorts of crafts, actually, but including um, jewellery. Mm. 
And Afghanistan is a place that is very rich in natural stones. And so this is a necklace which I bought there. And that's an old Afghan symbol of a bird that's on it. And various rough cut stones. And I love that. So this is a lovely, I think that's called a belcher chain where the which isn't a very nice word, is it? Where, where the links are around like that. And then there's this beautiful, almost looks like a sort of um, fishhook bird. It, uh, I think... Yes, I it's very stylized, it. isn't it? Very stylized bird. You can sort of see his eye and beak. Mm. And then there are four stones. These are my kind of colours. So they're all very watery. There's a lovely pink, which looks like a sort of rose quartzy, but it's got a nicer purple to it and then various shades of greeny blue could that be be an emerald it could be very 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 much could be um, and there's something that i want to say is kunzite kunzite it's definitely one of them is a kunzite and there might be something called sphene and i'm not sure if they're the same ones so different people use different words for things and when I was out in, I didn't go into Afghanistan, but on the border in the, on, in Peshawar. Oh, Peshawar, yes. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of some great people there cutting lots of spheen. So there's a lot of it coming through and lots of emeralds. So that's what I'd expect to see coming through from Afghanistan would be Kunzite spheen emeralds. Yeah. But, and it's got, the country's got a sort of huge tradition of um, jewellery making from, you know, Alexander the Great yeah. got that far. And there's something called Bactrian gold. There was a kingdom of Bactria. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful jewellery that was hidden away from the Taliban when they were in power. But I think the... I'm not sure whether they're on display yet. I think it's so valuable. I think they're very, very worried about putting it on display. And the museum in Kabul is one of the saddest places I've been to because any figurative art was smashed. by. So there's beautiful, beautiful pottery from... A culture that I think is just spectacular which is called Gandhara art I don't know whether you've ever seen this no, quite a lot in the Victoria Museum you really look it up yeah. because it's a melange between Greek classical art and Indian slash Afghan that 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 yes. kind of civilization so you have the sort of the purity of the classical beauty with a much more fluid line yes so I I think what's fascinating is when I was in Israel and Palestine when I was a student the Palestinian boys we hooked up with said um, let's go to this place I don't know where it was it might have been in Jordan or something and they said there's this village it's got the the most beautiful girls in the world and and they have green eyes and red hair and we didn't go because I couldn't cross the borders and things but um, I was fascinated about the movement of Alexander the Great because there are these pockets certainly when I was up in Peshawar you see people because they're still wearing sort of robes that cover themselves from head to foot but you have sometimes you have these sort of almost Greco noses and green eyes and so there were these, these pockets and you just think oh my god Gosh, it's almost like it was two minutes ago that Alexander and his people were there and they were sort of having girlfriends and marrying and, you know, making a life for themselves and stuff. Yeah. But it's all still there, isn't it? It's still there. There's a wonderful site called Taxila in northern Pakistan where they have it's lots of Buddhist stupas, but they have Greek Ionic capitals around the base of the stupas. You know, it's just, it's just how brilliant. far it was. It's absolutely It's just brilliant. Fascinating. Well, this is a lovely, a lovely necklace. Mm-hmm. 
So um, where should we go next? Okay, so where should we go so next? You're, you're, you're off reporting, you come back. I mean, you go there quite regularly to that part of the world, do you? Yes, um, I was last there in 2019 doing a live programme from um, our British Army base yeah. there and interviewed President Ashraf Ghani and went to the yeah. presidential palace. It's much more difficult getting around there now. Well, partly I think it was because I was with army people, but travelling everywhere by helicopter yeah. and not so much on the ground. Other times I've been, I remember, living or staying in the BBC house yeah. You know, and you were able to get cars out and about and had much more feeling of being in the city. Um, so my neighbour is Jeremy Bowen, who's the oh, BBC yes, yes. Um, Lovely guy, Middle East yeah. editor. And once we were sort of chatting over a drink and he said, oh, let's have a family holiday in Jerusalem and you'll come with us and we'll, we'll have a look around. I thought for me to go back with someone that actually knows the area yeah, and has all yeah, the contacts yeah. would be yeah. brilliant because they're beautiful people, but it's not the easiest. I mean, certainly when I was in Peshawar and we were in the only hotel that hadn't been blown up and it was the World Cup. So I was watching the football and sort of pretending not to obviously... I, I, I must have stuck out like a sore thumb, but you have to be a little, little bit sensible and careful about how you go about things. And yeah. so it'd be quite good to go with someone who knew the land, yeah. the lay of the land. Yes. Oh, well, Jerusalem. I've been there for work a few times um, to do the Today programme from there. And Gaza. And, yeah, no, but Jerusalem is definitely worth visiting. It, it's just how well everyone gets on. You know, it's a bit like... I suppose when I was at school, we'd hear about the troubles and then, you know, actually they're lovely people and most people sort of just get on with life in a normal way, don't they? It's it's not like, uh, you know, every street corner has has bombs going off and things all the time. And that's that's what I felt about it was that actually everyone was going to the market and getting their kids to school and doing their best to be have a normal life and that, yeah. that, that was the thing that always strikes me when I go to these sort of places well that's certainly I mean interesting to bring up Northern Ireland because that, that's somewhere that I've covered a lot as a journalist and covered the troubles a lot but also I have um, roots there because my mother and her family are from Northern Ireland yeah. and as if I were a professional broadcaster it mm. leads me on to my next piece of jewellery I knew you'd bring <laughs> something to this podcast Martha and you have <laughs> so this is well, this I'm I know it's jewellery, but I've bring it together with a shawl. Yes. Because these both belong to my grandmother. And rather weirdly, they were in my kind of dressing up box as a child. She died when I was quite young, when I was about 10. But looking at pictures of her when she was a young woman, she was sort of quite a flapper. I think, rather, you know, dressed, just a wonderful 1920s wedding dress, very slim. And yeah, so these are kind of beads of hers that I would think slightly, when I watched the film... Thoroughly modern Millie as a child. I always thought of my grandmother wearing these sort of kind of beads, you know. And I love you. I'm going to do it again because I love beads. I love the sound they make. Yeah. They're sort of olive shaped beads, graduated from small to big at the front, and they're a lovely sort of deep, whiny red current colour. They're not amber, and, but and they're almost an amber kind of colour. They've got a yeah. lovely yeah. light to them. Yeah. And putting them on the scarf, you just think, yes. you just think, oh, she was a glamorous togger. I mean, yeah. you, I can almost see her. It's great. Yeah. I love the way that these things take you straight back to either dressing up or your brand or something. Yeah. So she was Irish on, on your side of the family. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so she was that. And her father was from a very poor family in Northern Ireland. But he ended up building up quite a big business with lemonade. And he got oh. a lemonade factory and then ended right. up owning quite a few hotels. So she had quite a kind of privileged yeah. childhood in Northern Ireland and then met my grandfather. And they lived in a small town called... Dungannon, which is where my mother grew up. And then she went to university in the south, to University College Dublin, which is where she met my father, who was one of her nice. teachers. Oh, <laughs> nice. Well, yes. Okay, great. great. Um, yeah. 
your father was a was a he was from Li- no he was historian historian so and he was from you're... Liverpool yeah. yeah so yes he was always very much encouraged me to to do yeah uh, so that's what, how come you ended up at Oxford doing um, classics yeah he was very yeah. keen particularly it's called you know it's called greats and I think in his mind. That was the sort of, you know, the pinnacle of what you could do yeah. kind of academically. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure whether my Latin degree really was up to the rigours of an Oxford course. I mean, I, I scraped by. I think I might have been better with something less translation involved. Everyone that I've talked to that went to Oxford or Cambridge have said, you know, they sort of bluffed their way in and scraped by and, and, and they've all done incredibly well and they're all incredibly clever. Well, we're talking about my yeah. parents. I mean, luckily, because my mother is still alive, I haven't inherited anything from her. But this is a pair of um, earrings that my parents gave me that I think have a Celtic design on it, which is sort of goes back to my kind of family history, that they bought, uh, I think, in the Metropolitan Museum shop in New York. But you know, these things that you have, that I just mm. have worn these just an awful lot. I don't you know, I really, really no. like them. And the fact that they're, they're a present super. from my parents. They're um, super. I mean, so lot. they're sort of... He- domed hemispheres with a, with a kind of a, a slightly sort of floral, almost Celtic knot pattern on, and then I, I'm assuming a garnet set in the. I think they the are garnets, yes. They're lovely. They're lovely earrings. Yeah, um, so. And they've obviously been worn and loved, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. So, did you spend time in Northern Ireland or? Um, no, I was born in Dublin. After they got married, uh, they stayed sort of south, and we lived yes. there till I was four. And then my father got a job at a new university that was being set up, the University of Sussex, near Brighton. So we lived in Ditchling for a a long time, which I absolutely loved. I mean, I know everybody's view of their childhood is sort of sun-kissed, I wasn't blowing things up, but I did. We did. We did make the sun dens and yeah, lots yeah, of freedom. Yeah. yeah, and lots of you know sledges yeah. and things in, in the winter time. So that was very nice. And um, did you have an Irish accent? And um, I did. I remember when I first went to primary school in um, Sussex. I used to get teased, teased a lot for saying H instead of H. And iron, not iron, and film, and you know, and I, yeah. I'm, I am a magpie because I've lived in lots of different places, yeah. and I do pick up accents, and then not consciously, not the kind of Eliza Doolittle way, but when we lived in Scotland, I had quite a strong, and I'm still with friends from Scotland, I, you know, go back I'm into glad Scotland to do that because I did, I did that. I just spent five minutes with someone and I'm, I'm copying mimic, mimic <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I feel like, do they think I'm taking the mimic? Yes, I know. Just, yeah, yeah. I wonder if that, uh, if that sort of musical ear is why we both like doing languages because certainly yeah. I've always studied all my life when I was at uni I did Italian then I did Japanese and it used to be the high point of my week those Italian classes which sounds a bit sort of like I must have yeah. miserable weeks but no, I, I just loved I know I do and I really wow. miss that now they're on Zoom because I just like I mean I know you because and you introduced me but the whole group of people from all different jobs and different parts of and the only thing we had in common was we'd sat around talking Italian. Yeah. But you learned quite a lot about their lives in yeah. our faltering, yeah. simple Italian. <laughs> and I do really, I mean, I can see it's better for the teacher that it's online because she brings in people from all over the world and it's easier for her. But I very, I really miss the kind of the proper human contact. So, you know, we've learned quite a few things and, and we can do things without having to meet face to face, which is going to be a good thing. But I just hope that our lovely teacher doesn't think, oh, it's so much better doing it online. Let's continue. I think that's going to be it, is it? Well, that's sad because I loved 
sitting in a room with people. And I loved feeling a bit of my brain being worked that wasn't worked the rest of the week. And it was just a little bit of something outside all of our normal humdrum stuff that we have to do. So, um, oh, it's a pity, but, you know, good good for her. So, lovely. Okay. so this... So you've got those lovely ABS earrings. Which kind of almost match. I mean, I can see you, you could wear them with this necklace because yes, the colours all match. Yeah. And there, there's something yeah, really nice about that. that. Yeah. Then this little cluster here, and I've got many more things like this, I did inherit from my lovely mother-in-law, um, Isabel, who sadly mm. died um, in her 60s, which was a great shame. She was a woman I really admired who had an extraordinary life, a word that's overused, but this is not in this case. She came from a small town in Romania. Actually, it was Hungary, I think, at that stage when she's... It's Romania now, from, in a Jewish family. And she and her family were first of all put in a ghetto and then taken off to Auschwitz and only she and her sister survived. And she was in Auschwitz and then labour camps and ended up being liberated by the British in Belsen and then went as a refugee to Sweden, was there for a while and then came to London, met Chris's father, who was a diplomat. And she lived, ended up being an ambassador's wife, living all over the world. She loved very sort of striking modern mm. jewellery. And these, I think, these are from Somalia. And I've got she a necklace, amazing. which I couldn't quite find. But anyway, big, big necklace with lots these of... These are great, aren't they? Yeah. I think they're jade from when they lived in um, Malaysia. So we have lovely little screw-on earring backs with uh, with some ornate wirework and then a kind of peanut butter coloured <laughs> bead. But I'm going to have to photograph those because there's too much to describe. But they, yeah. they've been constructed using beads and various And components I think because silver. of that part of East Africa, I think there's a lot of Arabic influence. I think we'll just have to photograph it. They're, they're yeah. beautiful, just very, very plain oval. They're called cabochons, those, that shape of stone where it's rounded on the front uh, and, uh, and flat oh, on the back. Uh, I love it. And so, I've got you actually a very nice sort of necklace that goes with that. Yes, you're, you're, what do they call it? Shopping in your own wardrobe. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm discovering all these so things. Much nice stuff. Yeah, they're super. They go, that's lovely. Okay. Lovely. Now, and then, then finally. Finish off on the on on bee, on bee on bees, fest. On the bees fest. So, so, this was the one that started it off. My friend Nicola gave me your baby silver bumblebee. Right, lovely. Good. Thank which, you, Nicola. Which is very funny because before I knew you and she gave it to me and I went, oh, that's an Alex Monroe because I'd heard about you through Kirsty Walk, my great friend who had one of your bees. She's fantastic, Kirsty. Um, yes. And that thanks, led to thanks, me buying this for myself because that, so that's one of the, that's the gold bee which I wear, wear um, a huge amount reflecting my, as we've just talked about my great love of bees. And then honestly, I've got friends of mine who give me so many lovely bee thing so this is from um a very good friend of mine who dismantled her grandmother's brooch which had little diamonds in it and your workshop had them wow. made up with um little bees and diamonds in that and that's so cool that's so pretty that's from imogen who was my best friend tutorial partner at oxford so we, ah. did, we did classics together oh, so lovely. That, that, Meant a lot to me, and, and then and the, the, the these, beautiful the, Minoan bees. bees. Yeah. So, so these are an exact copy of the very famous Minoan bee brooch in the museum yeah. in um, Heraklion on Crete. People know all about that, but what I discovered in the course of making my radio bee documentary is that it's full of beekeeping equipment as well. So they've got yeah. smokers, bee smokers, that are. 
maybe four thousand, four or five thousand years old. <laughs> just amazing. Yeah. So I, th- I seem to remember on the program, some people were still using quite sort of similar hives and smokers and equipment, and uh, and so were they doing that as a sort of theme park, or were they doing that genuinely? No, no, they, they, they do use quite a few beekeepers still use pottery hives mm. and Crete, which mm. is exactly the same shape and everything. Fantastic. You know, the Are they sort of upside down flower pots, basically? Yes, yes. I tried to Google images of them, but I didn't have enough time yesterday. That's brilliant. These Minoan bees I love, and I just think it's nice to show that bees have been used in jewellery since forever. So, yeah, um, yeah. And all you can do really is to sort of reinterpret the bee and... Um, I was into bees, but the reason that I was so fascinated with, with my bee was that they had an exhibition at Lucas Cranach Elder Exhibition. Oh, yes, yes. And I loved, I started out with that picture that you'll be familiar with, which is the one from Desperate Housewives with the Adam and Eve holding the apple. But I got into the Cupid complaining to Venus one, and, and Cupid is taking honey out of the beehive. And he's being stung all over. And he's looking up at Venus and she's looking down at him as if to say, well, you know, I told you so. Yeah. And I think partly reading around, uh, I just love this, the idea that you kind of, you take the honey, you get the, you know, you get the sting <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. And so I think the bee has been used or, or Cranach used it to symbolise the inevitable pain of love or that exchange you have for something, you know, ecstatic that you're also going to get yes, a bit of a Yes, you know. the danger, the danger of erotic love, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and, so I don't think that went back to sort of classical teaching, but maybe there was. I don't know enough about classical teaching, but it's just interesting how the bee has changed in symbolism. And actually, if you go to Japan, when I first did my bee and I showed it at Paris Fashion Week and some my Japanese buyers came along and they sort of looked curious at it and they picked it up and didn't really know what to make of it. And then the buyer turned it over and because I've got all the legs and things, and she literally screamed and threw it down and they were all revolted. So <laughs> Because I, it's so I, anatomically correct. Well, I think bees are nasty, stingy things in Japan, or, yeah. or they were at that time. Um, so obviously different civilizations, because we have that sort of Beatrix Potter thing with, where bees are so cute, aren't they? Yeah. I, when we started out, I was telling you about uh, the bees that sort of sweep around their, the entrances to their burrows. Oh, it's the pantaloon bees. The pantaloon bees. And, you know, we have such a cute image of bees, don't we? Whereas, obviously, bees have been incredibly important to every civilization throughout history, but they have different spins on it, I suppose, and it's yeah. evolved. I like your little bee selection of jewellery. Um, Martha, I've taken up so much of your time, so I'm going to say thank you. Well, well, thank you so much for making me delve into my jewellery boxes and find things that I haven't worn for ages that I will now have now rediscovered. And honestly, if there's anything that you're not wearing that we can do something Mm. to to make you wear it, just pop in because it'll take us five minutes and we'll have it right as rain and and working in no time. See you soon for some bee hunting in Minsmeyer. Yeah, that's a very good idea. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com.